From the Cervera Newsroom in sunny Miami, welcome to the Miami Real Estate Podcast, your home for expert insight on all things Miami real estate. I'm your host, Omar DeWint. Let's get started. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Miami Real Estate Podcast. It's that time again, the Economic Insights Report by the one and only Dr. Marcy Rossell, Chief Economist for Leading Real Estate Companies of the World. That is the global affiliate network of Cervera Real Estate. All right, so sit back, relax, and get ready for Dr. Marcy Russell's top five takeaways, what's impacting the economy on a global, macro, and micro scale. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to October Economic Insights with Dr. Marcy Russell, Jessica Edgerton, Chief Legal Counsel for Leading RE. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, Marcy, thank you in particular for being here. Yeah, it's hard times right now, Jess. Yeah, it's it's going to be a dark one, guys. Um, before we get started, uh, I, I want to let you all know um, that in addition to everything that Marcy and I are going to be talking about uh, with the economy, um, I have also received a lot of requests from our members for updates on another hot topic in our industry right now, which is the antitrust trials. Um, so at the end of this broadcast, at around 10, uh, t- uh, 10.30 or a little after, depending on some post-gaming, I am going to stay on for anybody who would like an update on the antitrust trials, do maybe a quick 15, 20-minute update and do some Q&A. I am going to be giving these updates on antitrust bi-weekly going forward through the end of the year. I will be doing it after Marcy's next couple of economic insights, and I will also be doing uh, standalones starting uh, week after next. So um, Marcy, uh, we are going to start with um, deeply unfortunate topic, which is um, the conflation of war. We have the uh, Israel-Hamas war that has now been raging for a number of weeks. Um, Before talking about the economic factors at play here. I do want to acknowledge that we have members in the area um, who we are holding in our hearts, in particular, uh, David Bibian, who is the head of uh, Bibian Group in Tel Aviv. I have been in regular contact with him. He's doing some great humanitarian work. He's also affiliated with Brown Harris Stevens, um, and he has a lot of ties to um, to some really good on the ground humanitarian groups. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, uh, please let me know. And by the way, David for now and his family are safe. Um, and so we're holding them and all of our members and agents in the area um, in our hearts. Okay, so with that, Marcy, please uh, talk to us a little bit about what the economic implications are here feels a little uh, clunky to move from, you know, sort of the, the desperate humanitarian situation into the economic situation, but the reverberations are very real and also have impact on the human side. So talk us through this. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, what we are seeing now is a continuation of exactly the same price shocks the exact same sort of economic ramifications in some ways that we began with 18 months ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. So it's obviously most sort of economically um, 
the potential for an oil price shock um, given production in that region. And so we've seen oil prices, which were beginning to kind of trend down just a little bit, stick at uh, basically $100 a barrel. Now, this is a deep, deep, deep um, problem for any country that is a net importer of oil, um, most particularly China, which is the world's you know, largest oil importer at this point. So continued weakness in the Chinese economy that's going to be exacerbated by high energy prices. Um, for the U.S., the U.S. economy is somewhat insulated from this problem because we are now a net exporter of oil. So if you think about the circumstances today versus, say, 50 years ago, um, really 50 years ago to the month that the Yom Kippur War was raging, the first time we saw this type of um, turmoil that affected the economy, um, that was 50 years ago. And it was a significant oil price shock then that brought about basically a recession in the United States. But because the U.S. is now a net exporter of oil, as opposed to a net importer of oil, the effect of high oil prices is essentially neutralized for the U.S. economy. So what would normally be a shock to the U.S. consumer, the U.S. home buyer, who is already struggling with record mortgage rates, with the resumption of student loan payments, um, with you know a squeeze from inflation across the board, um, Normally, had it been 10, 20 years ago, I would have said, well, this could tip the U.S. economy into recession. Um, but I don't expect that this time around. But it does, again, elevate interest rates. Um, it keeps them high because of what economists call a flight to quality. So whenever there is geopolitical turmoil worldwide, investors flow out of what they perceive to be risky assets, things like the stock market, um, certain parts of the bond market, anywhere where they perceive elevated risk, and they move into safer assets. And we saw exactly that over the last week, particularly in the rally in the US dollar. So that seems to be the asset of choice this time around during this conflict, as everyone attempts to move to something they perceive to be safe, and that this time around has been the US dollar. Uh, so very sad from um, a humanitarian point of view, um, just as the war in Ukraine um, brought us great sadness from the loss of life. It also brings um, great hardship to any country where people's, people are at subsistence level living and energy makes up a large portion of their budget. When prices go up, it's going to be a strain on those consumers in particular. So places like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Egypt, that were already struggling from high food and energy prices, this is just one more thing for them to deal with. And it's been a minute actually since we've we've talked directly about the Ukrainian war as well. Um, it's, it is, I think at this point, we can safely say entrenched. Um, we haven't talked about it for a couple of months. I want to bring that back up and just ask you in terms of this conflation, are there any additional factors other than what you just talked about when it comes to two really uh, heated wars now um, happening simultaneously and historically what we've seen and what you predict this might mean going forward into 2024? 
Well, unfortunately, for those of you who sort of know me and my sort of free market, free trade um, sort of beliefs that ever since the Second World War, um, the globe has embraced deepening economic ties as a way to prevent geopolitical tensions. And so during the Cold War, the, war, the world kind of split up between kind of East and West, and I'm sort of using those terms very loosely, where sort of the Eastern Bloc rotated around the Soviet Union and kind of was its own economic system. And at the same time, you had the US, Europe, its allies intellectually and ideologically sort of embracing ever deepening trade ties as a path to ever higher standards of living. And in the 1990s with the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think we thought that system had triumphed. And then China's entry into the WTO back in 2001, where myself included believed that ever deepening economic ties would lead to political integration um, and ever more sort of spread of Western style democracy around the globe. Unfortunately, these two conflicts, I believe, are solidifying, in some ways, the end of that enthusiasm, the end of that process. And we are likely to see the world once again divide up between sort of loosely East and West, this time with China being the Eastern orbit, replacing the Soviet Union in some ways, and then countries kind of dividing up along those lines. And over the long run, as an economist, I think it makes the world poorer than it would have to be. Poorer than it would have to be. It doesn't necessarily make the world poorer. It just makes it poorer than it would be under more optimistic circumstances. We've mentioned China a couple times. Before we move, and guys, just so we know, you know what the cadence is, we're talking U.S. economy. We are talking housing as well. And for those of you who jumped on, um, and miss my initial announcement. I am talking antitrust cases at the end of the program as well, so stick with us if you want that. Um, but before we do that, I think we need to touch a little bit deeper on China because not only um, is there the energy issue here now um, with them as massive energy importers, but as we have talked about before, they have a little bit of a real estate situation on their hands. Um, so can you can you talk a little bit about that, what the my word of the day, conflation of the energy and the real estate issue looks uh, like for China going forward as well. Sure. So China's real estate problems right now look very, very different than the problems we're experiencing in the United States because they have deflationary pressures on their hands. So if you think back to 2008, 2009, 2010 in the U.S., that was a time when house prices were falling and they were falling because of a very traditional sort of asset boom that turned into an asset bust where, and I, and I want to make this point because it, it feeds into our discussion about housing in the U.S. later. In 2008, 2009, 2010, lots of folks were holding on to mortgages, right, that they had taken out in 2005, 2006, many of them adjustable rate mortgages that, quite frankly, they were never going to be able to afford to continue to pay pretty much under any circumstances. They had only taken out those mortgages in the hopes of being able to flip, the expectation that they'd be able to flip the house, right? So that's a very different dynamic than what's happening right now. But China's dynamic in some ways looks a little bit different. 
there's a big portion of folks who have a mortgage on a home that has yet to be delivered, which means they're paying on something that they can't even use right now. That's a very similar recipe for falling house prices as the population loses confidence in the industry as a whole. So this can have the same kind of drag on economic activity like we saw in the US 2008, 2009, 2010. They have that kind of problem on their hands where it isn't inflation where prices are rising like we have sort of in the US, it is deflation where prices are beginning to fall. And the reason that's so bad is because if people expect prices to fall, then they wait. And because they wait, what happens to prices? They continue to fall. And so on top of the sort of stress of high energy prices, the stress of high food prices, because China is a net importer of both of those things, they've got a real estate decline on their hands as well. Couple that with the fact that their population has now peaked and it is beginning to decline. India is now the world's largest population and will continue to do that for a couple of decades. They have demographic issues with their workforce beginning to shrink. So these are long-term challenges for China. It doesn't mean that the Chinese economy collapses. I want to be very, very clear about that. It's just that China has a different set of challenges right now compared to what's going on in Europe and compared to what's going on in the U.S. So they are struggling long term and we know from our own experience in the u.s that process can take you know years to get out of it's a very deep hole um unlike you know again the circumstances here which are all dependent upon interest rates which we'll talk about in just a moment which markets can move those up and down very very quickly all right, let's turn to the U.S. here for a while. So Powell announced uh, just this week that they're likely to hold steady for a while. Um, we also saw a report just this week saying that economists have lowered their prediction for a recession to below 50%. I mean, overall, these sound like good indicators. Can you, first of all, thinking on on Powell and and and, and any movement or lack thereof coming up, including any lack of any tightening coming up, um, and whether or not you agree with uh, the, the idea that maybe recession talk is going to be on ice for a while. Sure. Okay, so I want everybody, before I start talking, to imagine that housing right now is kind of an economy in and of itself. Right. So all the things that I'm about to say about the general U.S. economy have implications for housing as its own economy, but really housing as an industry is acting in a different way than everything else. So I wanna be real clear about that. So let's siphon off housing, even though you know that's the industry we all care about, and let's not talk about that for just a moment, and let's talk about general economic conditions. Because one of the indicators that I've talked to you guys about before and that I follow very closely is the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's GDP Now. And GDP Now gives me a real-time estimate of how fast the economy is growing at any given period. And right now, it is suggesting that the U.S. economy in the third quarter grew at 5%. 5%. It's a really fast growth rate for the U.S. economy. Normally, 2-3% is typically what um, we would expect the economy to grow. 
So even in the face of tighter monetary policy, consumers are still spending money. Even in the face of all kinds of issues around um, strikes, strikes at the UAW level, strikes in Hollywood, um, the economy has managed to grow even in the face of all that. So the underlying strength is pretty remarkable, which means because the economy underneath is so strong, Federal Reserve can raise rates and it doesn't have the recessionary impact. People still have jobs. And at the end of the day, as long as people have jobs, they will continue to spend money. That's just the bottom line for the American consumer. So that dynamic still holds. And it's one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve can hold rates where they are because it's not causing a recession. So the higher for longer um, mantra headline um, has now really been accepted by everyone. And when Powell talked this week, if you were listening, he said, we are willing to tolerate weakness in the job market in order to get inflation under control, right? Yeah. Well, guys, the reason he's saying that is because a year from now, when inflation will be under control, no one's going to come back and say, you promised us job losses. Where are they? Right? right. So talk is a little bit cheap. But as long as his talk convinces all of us that they are credible and they're going to do what it takes to get inflation under control, inflation will come under control without the subsequent job losses. Um, labor markets are still incredibly tight. Um, the unemployment rate is low. And even though we've seen some loosening in the number of job openings per unemployed person, that's the only weakness in the job market, which means even as student loan payments kick back in, people are going to be able to make those payments because they've got a job. So are they just going to leave rates like they are forever? I mean, is there going to be any talk of lowering at any point middle of next year, maybe? I mean, at some at one point, I think we, we thought maybe May. Is, is that Mark not on the table? Still anticipating, markets are still anticipating a rate cut in the second half of next year. So the best place to look is always financial markets, right? I mean, I can explain to you what is happening, but if I told you rates are going to be zero next year, that forecast is useless when you right. put it against what markets are telling you. And markets are suggesting that the Federal Reserve will begin to lower rates because the truth of the matter is I don't expect the economy to continue to grow at 5%. 5% is really well above trend. So if growth comes back to 2% and inflation is running 2%, that suggests a policy rate of 4%, right? That's a lot lower. And the movement down to 4% is likely to have a disproportionate effect on mortgage rates in the sense that mortgage rates are probably going to come down more than just 100 basis points. Um, for reasons that we kind of talked about last time, remember last time we talked about how much um, prepayment risk is now incorporated into mortgage rates, yeah. right? So this is a real problem is mortgage rates go up, investors expect people to refi in the future, therefore they require even more compensation through the form of higher interest to compensate them for the prepayment risk. And so mortgage rates have this unfortunate um, characteristic as they get higher and higher, 
they don't increase linearly, they increase almost exponentially to some extent, if that's sort of helpful for everybody. So they don't go in lockstep with fixed rate with, with, with the 10 year treasury. As rates get higher and higher, they inch up even faster. Which also means though that as the 10 year treasury declines, they'll come down, you know, even faster in the second half of this year. But basically, with rates at eight percent no one has an incentive to take out a mortgage in this environment. In fact, the latest numbers, which everyone out here is aware of, loan applications are at their lowest level since 1995. And I told you it was gonna get dark, guys, sorry. It's purely an interest rate phenomenon. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not people can afford their mortgages. In fact, we're almost in this perverse environment where People who do have mortgages already can so easily afford them that they don't want to give them up and move home. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've got the highest mortgage rates that we've seen. We're going to talk housing now. And guys, please remember, amazing, amazing benefit of these shows. Throw your questions into the question mark box. You get to ask Marcy direct questions. Throw those in now. We'll get to as many at the end as we can. Um, okay, so we've got highest mortgage rates in 23 years. We have slowing sales, maybe a little bit of, of, of price relief in, in certain geographic areas for, for buyers, but I mean, when you look at mortgage rates, so what? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so what, what yeah. do we do, Marcy? What does this look like? Um, what stats have I missed? And when are we gonna see some relief? Sure. So we know stats of activity are at really low levels. Now we've put that into perspective a couple times and basically gone 21, 20 and 21 were such crazy nut years that now 22 and 23, of course, are going to be way lower, right? So if you sort of average them all together, you'd kind of get a normal housing market. But that doesn't help us today, right? Um, in terms of transactions now, are at just sort of rock bottom levels. I mean, that's absolutely true. But I want, because you sort of alluded to affordability statistics and how the press is making a lot of headlines, a lot of hay around the fact that a couple things, um, the average house is no longer affordable to the average person, right? So in order to buy the average house, you have to earn about $115,000 a year. Well, the average American earns about $70,000 a year, right? So there's this huge mismatch in terms of affordability. It's also the case when you compare payments, right? Monthly payments today at an 8% almost mortgage rate with what they were, you know, even 18 months ago, um, for the same house, mortgage payments have doubled. Right. So all of this on the surface is sounds dreadful. Right. And it's dreadful for someone who has never bought a home before and isn't in the market. Right. But those stories sort of don't quite fully explain everything, because if you already owned a home, you've experienced 50 percent appreciation, at least in the value of it. So when you do go to change homes and take on a new mortgage you have equity to plow into the next house 
that brings the payment down. So that dynamic that you guys all understand is not being well expressed, I believe, in most of the stories around how housing has become so much less affordable. It's unaffordable for people who weren't in the housing market. So all those millennials who have yet to buy their first house, this makes it very, very difficult for them. But if you're talking about, say, my hairdresser Jackie, right? Let's use my hairdresser Jackie as just the example. Um, five years ago, Jackie moved to our hometown and she bought a starter home in, in this town that I live in, in Michigan, right? So she's got this cute little house. It's a starter home and um, Jackie's got a mortgage on it. She refied a couple of years ago, right? So she's got a really low house payment, right? So she's been saving money and upgrading the kitchen and doing all this fun stuff because she's not paying anything to live there basically. And the value of her home has appreciated at least 50%, maybe even more, given where I live. Which means if Jackie did want to change homes, she'd have a lot of equity to sort of roll over into the next one. So that dynamic for people who were already in the housing market really gets ignored when we talk about issues of affordability. Now that doesn't help those of us who are in the transactions business right now, but I think it does give a little bit of a different perspective for your clients who are coming in and going, oh my God, I, I just can't afford a mortgage anymore. I've been reading the headlines and housing affordability is at an all time low. That may be true if they didn't own a house already but the value of their house has gone up a whole bunch, which means they've got a lot of equity in it as well. So that's part of the dynamic, which if you look at what the numbers that have come out from the Federal Reserve around household wealth and the way that household wealth has increased so much over the last three years, much of that is coming from housing wealth, right? And that's the piece that sort of brings it, I think, a little bit more into perspective it doesn't help with the transactional side right now, but it does give us a, a little bit of um, ability to, to understand the affordability issues a, a little bit better. Okay, and another piece of sort of semi-bright news, we continue to see real inventory coming online, new inventory coming online, which is helping to assuage some of that locked-in syndrome that we've been experiencing. So talk about what we're seeing in starts and where we might be going from there. Right, so in September, starts were up, I believe, like 15% year over year. So home builders um, have sort of stepped into the breach and basically said, you know, these are great times. If for, for people who can't find a home from existing inventory, they're going to go buy a new house. And even though high interest rates crimp builders to some extent, what um, appears to be happening is that builders are building smaller houses. Right. So they are building a, a, they're building into a segment of the market that's essentially been ignored, really, for the last decade, I would almost argue that if builders wanted to build, they built huge homes. Right. That was the only thing that made sense. But now we're seeing builders sort of go into that starter home side of the market and building some bringing on some inventory, quite frankly, where it's needed. It's the only bright spot, I would say, right now when it comes to what's going on in the housing market. And, and builder sentiment, the latest suggests that these 8% mortgage rates are really starting to crimp builder sentiment. 
Um, but, but I'm going to take the inventory sort of as a positive sign going forward. And I also want everybody to understand that the big effects of the locked-in syndrome were last year, right? So it's the movement from basically two to seven or three to seven percent that brought about all that locked-in syndrome. Moving from seven to eight doesn't really make that any worse, quite frankly. That's done. That's completely done. Um, that part of the market, that problem, that was a 22, early 23 problem. 2024, it'll have its own problems, but it won't be that one. I mean, I'm hoping in 2024, we can have a few more. Yeah, we're, it's got to get better. Light and celebratory economic insights. Uh, right. We are getting some questions from the audience here. Uh, first, question back to, this is from Kristen. Thank you, Kristen. Question back to student loan debt. Payments have resumed, but Biden recently announced another round of forgiveness. How does that sync up? Um, the round of forgiveness is, is small um, from the Biden administration um, relative to the proposal that was on the table six months ago, which was we're just going to you know, get rid of it for everybody who makes under a certain income. Um, and, and I take kind of a little bit of a hard line when it comes to student loans. And so I know that they are burdensome for many, many people. I really do get that. And I, I really am critical of the fact that it is possible for an 18 year old, right? Who doesn't understand the difference between $100, $1,000 and $10,000 to be able to take on so much debt. That's where the problem lies. Not in the fact that they gotta pay it back later because the reality is that um, people have been doing it for decades. They've been doing it for decades. My kids paid off their student loans. There were there have been millions of people over the years who paid back student loans, and it's always hard and it's always burdensome. That's just the reality of it, um, and I don't see it as really fair, right, to forgive the student loans of one group um, just because they happen to luck up and be sort of born at a certain time, right? So that's not the way that financial markets and good, solid, fair financial markets work. Um, the problem comes is, is the initial ability of people that age to be able to borrow so much. Because the reality is all it does is increase the cost of college, which benefits administrators primarily. So that's my little spiel on student loans. Um, should you rewrite those contracts after the fact? Absolutely not. Um, what effect is it likely to have on the economy? Um, now that everybody understands that they're gonna have to sort of pay again, there's nothing about this that's unexpected. Um, and in fact, chances are, the interest rates they're paying on those student loans are less than what mortgage rates are right now. Um, so it definitely puts it into a, a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, another question, arms coming back into vogue some places. Talk about your thoughts. Um, you know, I am always um, a proponent of um, the largest, most thriving and free market real estate ecosystem that we can sort of come up with. And in an environment like this where I don't think people are expecting rates to stay high, um, an adjustable rate mortgage might make sense. Um, but again, people need to go into those with their eyes wide open and understanding exactly what they are getting into. And that's where sort of having an agent 
right? Having someone who can walk them through that in a way that they fully understand. Um, that's where the value comes from having an agent, which is something I bet Jess is going to talk about here in just a little bit. Oh, Marcy, what a perfect lead-in. It's my antitrust talk. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks. So with that, we are going to switch gears kind of hard. Marcy, you're welcome to, to stay on and, and hear the antitrust update. Um, but we, oh, wait, yeah, we got one more question. All right, one, all right we're going to do one more question from okay. Ryan. Um, and, and then, and then we're, we're still in the, in the, our official post game. Um, okay. Oh, we're getting a lot of questions. Oh, uh, we'll, here's what we're going to do. We're going to okay. say, and in four weeks, I'm going to be right back with you. And maybe in four weeks, let's start with questions. Okay. Ooh, ooh, guys, we're switching it up. Okay. Um, for those of you who have questions, we've got a ton of questions rolling in. Oh, please come back next month uh, for Economic Insights. Marcy has just redesigned our program. I love that. We are going to start with audience Q&A next time. We're going to make it a party. Those questions that are in there right now, we are going to start with those next week. Okay. All right. Beautiful. I love it. Okay, folks, stick with me if you're an antitrust wonk. I'm going to walk you through the Sitzer Burnett uh, case. Thank you again, Marcy, for being here. Everybody else, stay with me. All right. Folks, here we go. Um, so this is, I'm going to do slides. Marcy's always so wonderful about not regaling you with a bunch of slides, but you got yourself an attorney on the, uh, on the main screen here. So let me switch over into, all right. Can I get a, how does that look audience? Can you see my slides here? Everything looking good? Hit yes in the, all right, all right, we got it going. Okay, so here's the, here's the deal folks. We all know that the antitrust environment has heated up considerably uh, in the last few weeks with the uh, formerly known as Sitzer, now Burnett case out of the Western District of Missouri. We have gotten a lot of requests for regular updates as all of this unfolds. So I'm here for you. This is going to be a very quick, rapid fire, PowerPoint-based talk. I will provide the PowerPoints to you following the show. Um, and I am, as all of you know, available to our leading RE members and agents for any particular questions. Um, I'm going to go through some basics of what all of this is about. And then I'm gonna walk us through uh, week one of the Burnett trial, what that means, what the cadence of the rest of the trial is going to look like, and end with a few uh, recommendations and thoughts on what we should be doing. These updates are going to be happening every two weeks. This is probably the only week that I'm going to do a little bit more of an extensive what is it all about, because I know we have a lot of uh, regular listeners, um, but these slides, again, are available to everyone. All right. So let's talk first about a very quick update of what all of this is. We're seeing antitrust in the headlines every single day. What is antitrust? Antitrust is essentially a set of laws, US uh, federal and state laws that are intended to protect consumers from the bad behavior of a bunch of competitors getting together, colluding, setting prices and doing other bad things. The three main flavors are monopolies, where a bunch of competitors get together to make one big company that doesn't allow any competition. The second is group boycotts, 
uh, which are in play a little bit in some of the cases, I'll get to that at the end, but the real big antitrust lever that is being pulled right now by the plaintiffs in these big cases is price fixing, um, which is when competitors get together and agree not to compete and rather to set prices and therefore stifle competition, set prices high, and uh, all of that is, of course, to the detriment of our consumers, which is the, of course, the tie-in between these three big uh, famous flavors of antitrust, which is antitrust activity kills uh, competition and tension um, between um, businesses in the same in the same vertical, and the consumers end up suffering. Okay. So we have three, mostly, what's referred to as the three big cases um, that are at play right now in antitrust all around the idea of price fixing. The first is Burnett v. NAR. This is out of the Western District of Missouri. That is the case that we just ended, uh, or just, hi, Marcy, you are listening. Goodbye, Marcy. <laughs> Glad to know she's on. Um, so Burnett v. NAR is uh, at play. We, we're just finishing up week one. We have another day uh, of, of trial happening today. Um, the plaintiffs in these cases, it's a class action. So we have got a large group of, of individuals who sold their houses during a certain time period, around five uh, years, 2015 to 2020. The defendants are the National Association of Realtors and what now comes down to two remaining corporate uh, defendants. Two of those have now settled out. We'll talk a little bit about what those settlements look like in a minute. The plaintiff's claim is that the National Association of Realtors has put forth a, a set of mandatory laws, the, the main one being the uh, rule that in order to participate in the MLS, there needs to be an offer of compensation that is, uh, that is put down from the listing broker to the uh, to the buyer's representation through the MLS, and that that system has caused prices to stagnate. It amounts to a, um, a group agreement to set prices at 6% uh, on commissions, and that consumers, in these cases particularly sellers, have been harmed because they've essentially been forced to pay the uh, three, a 3% commission. Again, we all know that that is not the case. Those prices are... Um, are negotiable and, and variable throughout the country, but they say 3% uh, to the person who essentially sits on the other side of the table and argues against their own position. The defendant's counterparts uh, or counterpoints to this are, as we all know, commissions are always negotiable. They always have been, they always will be. The MLS system is extremely pro-competitive. It allows for the broadest access to homes and inventory. To, which is, of course, of benefit to sellers because it gives them the broadest uh, exposure for their listings and is of benefit to buyers who then have exposure to the broadest listing of uh, a set of inventory for their own needs. Um, this is, as we all know, a very pro-consumer system, and uh, there are also very strong pro fair housing arguments, pro-first-time homebuyer arguments, pro-veteran, pro-underserved community arguments um, that essentially enforces uh, these rules being in place. So, um, and and uh, the, the other argument from the plaintiffs is if this system breaks down and buyers are left to uh, pay out of pocket for their representation, then these underserved uh, folks are going to end up out of pocket, unable to buy their own uh, way with representation and will be at serious disadvantage for the most important transaction of their lives. 
Okay, so I'm going to start with the settlement updates because in all of these cases, there have been a number of settlements and they do have implications going forward. Uh, the first settlement that we heard about was a few weeks ago uh, in July, uh, July 5th specifically, uh, which was no select V pin MLS. This is the only case of the set that does not include NAR as a defendant, but the same named corporate defendants are uh, at play there. The main uh, association uh, or the, the, the main defendant in this case um, is a, a non-NAR affiliated MLS PIN. Um, on July 5th, PIN settled or tried to um, and uh, basically said, and, and, and the, the allegations, by the way, are essentially the same here, that PIN had instituted rules um, of, of color of the NAR rules that we just talked about um, requiring offers of cooperation and compensation. This caused a group uh, 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 price setting and it was anti-competitive and hurt consumers. Uh, PIN said, okay, we're going to settle. Um, they settled for $3 million, which was to be used for uh, continuing to, to litigate against the corporate plaintiffs. Um, and there were a couple of rule changes, PIN nixing the rule of requiring offers of compensation, uh, making offers optional, allowing 0% to be offered, and a few other uh, rule changes as well. Now, the judge first said, uh, I'm, I'm not going to, to authorize this, um, and then uh, said, okay, fine, PIN can settle. But then the Department of Justice relatively recently jumped in and said, uh, actually, no, I have real concerns. Department of Justice said this. Uh, we have real concerns about the legitimacy of these terms. Um, it's very clear that they believe that there, there needs to be more stringent um, rules, rule changes put in place. So all of that is still out there in play. Um, and we'll see what happens. Burnett and Merle, uh, the two cases that are out there uh, that name uh, NAR, um, have also had major headline-making settlements anywhere, and Remax, two of the named corporate defendants, have now settled out. These are provisional settlements. Um, the court still needs to approve those, but we have now heard some of the terms there um, of the settlement, which include cash payments from each of them, um, in the elimination of a requirement that uh, the associated franchisees and brokers and agents belong to the National Association of Realtors and a prohibition of any technology or methods to sort listings. Now, a lot of the, and there were some other terms. Um, it's notable though, that a lot of the requirements of the settlement, the agreements between the, the plaintiffs and, and defendants um, are reflective of some rule changes that NAR, NAR made in November a couple of years ago, um, including uh, a, a prohibition against buyer's agents saying that, that their services are free and some other ones. So um, it's, it's my humble opinion that as they did with PIN, we may end up seeing some involvement from the Department of Justice objecting to uh, this settlement and, and demanding more. Okay, so those are the settlements so far. Let's talk for a minute now about Burnett, which is the hot one out of the Western District of Missouri. Uh, we're out through week one and we have two more weeks to go. All right, let's talk about the cadence of the trial first. So this week, the plaintiffs had the floor. It started out with both the plaintiffs and defendants making opening statements. Um, then the plaintiffs took the floor. And there was uh, a, uh, the, the plaintiff's attorney uh, was the star of the week. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, about what, was, uh, what was brought to light by them this week. Next week, 
uh, we have the defense, NAR, and the corporate defendants uh, taking the floor and making their case uh, to the jury. And uh, then after that, we are going to have a bunch more activity. We're going to have closing statements. The judge is going to give jury instructions to the jury. There are going to be deliberations. There's going to be a verdict. If any relief is granted, they're going to talk about that. If there's any injunctive relief, there's going to be uh, talk about what that time frame looks like. And inevitably, whoever loses will appeal. Now, the main meat of that appeal, uh, given that a lot of what is being looked for by the plaintiffs is injunctive relief, is probably going to be a financial battle. Hopefully, some of the injunctive relief or all of it can be stayed um, if it does end up that the defendants get the short end of the stick, but that is um, not necessarily the case. So in the end, there, there could very well be um, some rule changes per an injunction happening relatively quickly following this trial, just so so everyone's aware. Um, and and note too, there was a lot of there was a lot of, um, of speculation about the remaining two corporate defendants, or maybe even NAR settling out. Just because the trial has started does not mean that that is off the table. Settlements can happen really at any time during this process. So that's that that could still be uh, in the pipeline. Okay. Um, and that's just me speculating and talking about how trials work. Uh, no insider information at all about that whatsoever. In fact, NAR has said, said very, very clearly, we are going to battle this to the death um, and we're not settling. Okay, so week one, what happened this week? Obviously opening statements by both sides. And then the plaintiff's lead attorney for the plaintiffs is uh, a guy named Ketchmark um, presented their case. So a lot of witnesses were brought to the trial. Inman, love them or hate them, they've been doing a great job covering the trial. Um, they have a reporter in the, in the court uh, on the ground here. So shout out to, to their coverage. Um, the named plaintiffs sellers, and again, these are just the named plaintiffs. Remember, it's a class action. So these named plaintiffs represent thousands of, of home, home sellers over time. But these are the folks that are really kind of leading the fray. They get, they get paid a little extra for doing that, et cetera. Um, so they, they all took the stand. Um, they testified to when they, when they sold their homes, um, the unfairness of the pro process. They said that they felt like they shouldn't be paying the person on the other side of the table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the plaintiffs also um, tried to show that the corporate defendants uh, training materials uh, really encouraged their agents to set commissions at 6%. Um, I don't know that they did a very good job of it, but that was what they were they were trying to do. And there was NAR staff, Ronnie, Ronnie Gancho, who um, runs a lot of the MLS-related elements of, of NAR. Um, there, he, there was a recorded deposition from Rodney talking about and confirming that clear cooperation is, in fact, a mandatory, not an optional rule. All right. Um, so what is likely? Well, obviously, there's a lot more that's going to happen in the next two weeks at trial. Um, this is my personal opinion, folks. I don't know that um, we are going to end up with a win for the defendants. Um, I think there's probably less than a 50% chance here, and I'm basing that on really two elements here, certainly not on the merits of the case. I am very pro-NAR, pro-industry. Um, I, uh, I, I hope that I'm wrong, um, but there are two elements here. First of all, just statistically speaking, this is a jury trial, it's an antitrust jury trial, and generally antitrust juries go for whoever is perceived as the little guy, very clearly in this case, individual home sellers are the little guy, and AR and the corporate defendants are the big guy. So that doesn't help us optically. 
um, or statistically. And second, overall over the, the last four years here with all these trials, the, um, the individual uh, court decisions and statements and, um, and motions and sort of press um, have been very anti-real estate industry and very pro-plaintiffs. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of a nail biter. Um, what would happen then? Well, there's, there's likely, I think, and, and probably what would, what, what would come out here is offers of fire compensation in the MLS become universally optional. Um, there is also talk that there could be an outright prohibition against any offers uh, going through the MLS. There will, as I already said, be an inevitable um, uh, drawn out appeals process. And as we saw with MLS PIN, um, the Department of Justice is almost certainly going to get involved no matter what happens. So I don't know that an outcome for this trial either way is the end all be all because the feds are breathing down our necks. All right, um, other cases in play here. Merle v. NAR et al. This is out of the Northern District of Illinois right here in my hometown, Chicago. Um, we have, oh, and those settlements that I mentioned um, weren't just for Burnett, they were for Merle as well. Those corporate defendants settled out with both. Um, so we have that going on. Uh, two corporate defendants and NAR remain. The judge in the Merle case, Judge Wood, bless her heart, is extremely, notoriously slow. It is very clear to me um, that she is going to be watching the Burnett trial and basically following in, in lockstep with that. Um, she also, as I'll, I'll mention in a minute, has another very interesting case on her plate. I'm sure, I, I'm very glad I'm not Judge Wood right now. She's, she's got some interesting stuff going on. Um, so there is no trial date set, nothing is happening there. Um, other corporate defendants uh, may follow uh, settlement there. We, we, we just don't know, but Judge Wood is, is going to be doing a copycat, I think, on, on her net. All right. So what does this look like in terms of uh, optional optional offers, that kind of landscape? Well, um, I wanna point out that it's, it wouldn't be unprecedented. Northwest MLS made, made changes uh, back in 2019. Their business has been continuing on relatively unscathed, which in my mind shows that our system works. Buyers want representation. The, the system is, is brilliant. It's, it's, um, it's not broken but it might get broken by these cases. So um, at least, or at least very, very muddled. Um, so I, I, I enjoy pointing to Northwest MLS as sort of a case study in optional uh, offers working, um, but also all of this rigmarole being unnecessary. Bright MLS recently, as of last month, made option uh, offers uh, zero down from a penny. NAR has also come out uh, with a clarifying statement saying, yes, offers, uh, are required in the MLS, but an offer can be zero. Uh, so there was some, some clarifying language from, from Katie and her team on that as well. Um, MLS PIN as part of this settlement, which may or may not uh, end up getting approved or, or messed with thoroughly by the Department of Justice. Uh, part of that settlement was also um, optional, optional offers. I don't see, no matter what happens, as some sort of cliff being fallen off. Again, I point to Northwest MLS. I think that there, we may be seeing some sea changes over time uh, to the detriment, again, of first-time home buyers, of uh, buyer agency, um, but I don't think it's going to be a sudden and dramatic shift necessarily, um, but there could definitely be a, a change over months or years in, in the way commissions practice if this comes out uh, to, uh, to our detriment. Um, there is uh, a lot 
of uncertainty right now. Obviously, we're in the middle of the trial, and those are just my personal uh, thoughts. Now, again, Judge, Wood, Judge Wood's nightmare out of the Northern District. I just want to mention um, that there is a case. This is all, all the cases we just talked about are sellers as the plaintiffs. There is another case um, out of the Northern District in front of Judge Wood, which has been resuscitated now by a bunch of clever uh, plaintiff's attorneys uh, claiming that buyers as well have been financially harmed. Now, the original case was Leader v. NAR at all, same corporate defendants again, and NAR. Um, Leader was dismissed by Judge Wood for lack of standing under federal law. You have to have direct harm to plaintiffs in order to have standing under federal antitrust laws. Um, so she just dismissed it, I'm sure, with a huge sigh of relief. Clever lawyers came back. The case is now Batten, Bolt, and Grace, VNAR at all, same claims, and said, yeah, you're, you're right, Judge Wood. Sorry, mea culpa, no federal standing. But guess what? In about two-thirds of the states, there is standing. And so for indirect harm to plaintiffs under antitrust law. So they have refiled the case with a bunch of state tie-ins. Um, there... Uh, there was a status hearing. Sorry, this slide is is out of date. There was a status hearing last Thursday uh, in the in the old leader case. I think what we're now seeing is uh, Batten, Bolton, and Brace is going to be the uh, the primary vehicle for this argument, and we need to keep an eye on it. And I will keep an eye on it for you. Okay, uh, government involvement. I've already made reference to this multiple times during the case, but it's also something to be aware of. Not only has the Department of Justice been very involved with amicus briefs and in the Penn MLS, uh, uh, putting Penn MLS settlement on ice. But as you will all recall, there is also the Department of Justice case against NAR, which is now on appeal after a dismissal earlier this year, um, looking to uh, gain the rights to re-examine, reopen a case against NAR uh, with the Department of Justice um, looking to investigate clear cooperation and offers of cooperation and compensation. So again, uh, I, I said it already, I'll say it again, no matter what happens with these cases, with these private class action cases, we still need to shake the Department of Justice off our backs, and that may not happen for a while. Okay, so what can be done right now? I'm talking to the agents right now. Brokers, I have slide decks for you as well, but I wanna focus on agents right now. Um, what actions can you be taking right now in anticipation of, uh, of, of what may happen here at trial and beyond? First of all, I know you're all doing it in short transparency about commissions, about the process, about their ability to negotiate as you work with your consumers. Obviously, we know this from a couple of years ago as well, when NAR changed their rules, uh, avoid suggesting that any buyer services are free, avoid suggesting when you're talking to your listing agents that anything less than a per certain percent will, will mean that their house isn't going to get sold, um, recognize as well the deep importance of using buyer representation agreements. I don't care if you're in a state that requires it or not use them is my is my recommendation to you. They help you have those conversations. They help protect you if you don't end up getting paid what you need from the sell side. Um, and they are a great way to have these conversations with your with your buyers. And you deserve them. You do great work. Buyers need you. Get a contract. Recognize as well, um, and this is especially for listing heavy agents, that there are some real dual agency issues that could be coming up if uh, the landscape changes here. There's gonna be more buyers out there wandering alone in the ecosystem, and you may end up being in situations where they are looking to you to essentially represent them. 
stay cognizant of your dual agency uh, boundaries when it comes to helping push through a transaction by hand-holding buyers. Um, and always drill down on education. Leading RE Institute has a bunch of materials there, um, but continue to, to sharpen your value proposition uh, for your buyers. Make sure that you understand effective conversations, et cetera, et cetera. Education is key. All right. Um, final note on clear cooperation. Clear cooperation is a big hook in all of these cases. I think one of the big instigators of these cases was in 2019 when NAR launched clear cooperation, which required listings basically to put into ML into the MLS 24 hours after any sort of public marketing, um, that this uh, heightens the, the view, the perspective that NAR was pushing everything into this, um, into their system. I, and, and we have two other cases out on the East Coast. We're, we're, we're low on time. I'm, I'm not going to get uh, too deeply into them. But these are two corporate plaintiffs, TAN, BNAR, and PLS, uh, BNAR. They are antitrust cases. They're saying clear cooperation basically broke their business models um, because they're off MLS, uh, public-facing off MLS models. Um, and both of those cases were recently resuscitated as well by appeals courts. So my prediction is that we are going to see some real changes to clear cooperation, perhaps even the elimination of clear cooperation in 2024. Some of you may be back there cheering on that. I know it's not necessarily a popular uh, a popular rule for everyone. Okay, so um, I'm going to keep doing this. These are the dates. Here's here's the link. I am getting a lot of questions and comments. That is one of the big um, the big, hold on, I'm gonna, there we go. Um, the, the, the big reasons for these sessions, um, I'm gonna take a couple of these and I will also take all these questions and shape my next uh, talk on them as well. Okay, um, let me see, I need to, okay. Um, Michael, I'm seeing a lot of comments from you. Thank you. I'm going up to ensure that I get all of your questions. Okay. Oh, will, th will there be a, a recording? Yes, absolutely, for both of these sessions. Okay. Uh, Michael, where the jury doesn't understand what they are judging on. I, this is that, so the jury selection is a very interesting topic, Michael. Thank you. Um, the, the jury was specifically selected. None of these folks are homeowners. Um, so they have not been through the process, and that was done. That was done thinking that people who own own homes would would be biased. I get that, um, but I think Michael, you are correct. Um, it's very difficult for a jury of everyday folks um, to to understand. And I think NAR is is doing a great job. The, the corporate defendants are doing a great job of explaining it, but it's always a little bit of a wild card with uh, with individual juries. Um, so yeah. Michael, I, I, Michael uses strong language here, and I, I feel like we're all among friends. It's all BS. He uses the full words. Um, let's see them sell a house without us. Sellers are the losers in this, and attorneys are the only winners. I, I, as an attorney, I apologize to our industry for the acts of my colleagues. Right. All right. Uh, let's see some other questions. Um, how can the department make a settlement and then renege on their offer of settlement? Agreed. And that's the main, that's the main question with um, the last case that I mentioned. The Department of Justice uh, settled with NAR two years ago. It was, or yeah, it was summer of 2021. Um, they, they came to a settlement with NAR. NAR went through with their side of the deal that November at the, at the November meetings and pushed through all of the rules 
that were requested in that settlement. The Department of the Justice in the meantime popped up and said, oh, Baxties, we didn't mean it. We need to investigate y'all more. Um, that is what is on appeal right now. Um, I think that it's a terrible position for the Department of Justice to put themselves in. They look um, sleazy. Yes, this is being recorded, but maybe maybe I'll take that part out. It's my personal opinion, um, but it's 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 a dirty business. Um, we'll see what happens with the appeal. It, there's there's been no decision on that yet. Uh, where can we get these slides? We will send those out to you. Our marketing department will get them out to you. Um, okay. Interesting that this lawsuit is so is about consumer protection. Hold on, let me expand this question. Um, interesting how this lawsuit is so consumer protection focused, but these consumer uh, but these changes have the risk of driving buyers to work directly with listing agents. Exactly. That is my point on dual agency, a hundred percent. And uh, okay, sorry, I'm having trouble expanding your question here, but it's an excellent one with lots of good points. Um, have the okay, here we go. Have the risk. This is Francis. Thank you, Francis. Uh, these consumer protection focus, but these changes have the risk of driving buyers to work directly with the listing agent. And dual agency does have a huge does a huge disservice to the seller and naturally the buyer. If our defense teams do not truly understand our business, the fallout from this could end up creating other consumer injury. Uh, 100%, 100% agree, which is why I encourage all agents out there, study up on dual agency. It's gonna be a mess. Um, I do, Francis, hold uh, great hope in the defense attorneys. And I know uh, Katie Johnson and the rest of the NAR team have been working very, very closely with them to ensure that they understand the subtleties of the way that we all do business. Uh, so again, reiterating, I am unfortunately not hopeful that we are going to win, but it is absolutely by no means not because we shouldn't win, we should. Um, there's just, there seems to be a lot of um, environmental, um, psychological harm coming our way. Uh, from the judges, from the federal government, and in many cases from some of the big uh, press articles on this. Okay, folks, we have now reached the end of this program. I am going to collect the questions that I didn't get to. Um, I am absolutely going to share these slides. Please keep the questions coming. And again, I'm going to pop this up one more time. Uh, the, the updates will be as follows. I'll be here for you. Um, all of you know how to reach out to me, I believe, jedgerton at leadingre.com. If you want to talk offline, I'm doing a bunch of member updates as well for members. I'm, I'm doing them virtually. So if you want me to pop into a sales meeting, um, I am more than happy to if I, can, if I can make it work in my schedule. Appreciate all of you. We're going to get through this together. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being with us uh, for the last hour. And uh, see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.